The following podcast contains explicit language. How long do you think we'll be here? I don't know. Somebody said 1.30. I'm so tired. Well, let's be optimistic. Let's say 12.45. It's an easy seat. Two people. Yes. yes. And a tire iron. It's got to be done soon. Yes. Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Liz Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in LA, and with me is my high school friend and writing partner of 18 years, Sarah. That's me, Sarah Fain. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career and friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles. Today, we're coming at you from the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Yes, we are on set for our pilot, The Fix. Yes. It's a beautiful L.A. day, a classic L.A. day in a classic L.A. location. And we have a view of the Hollywood sign. Yes. We're sitting, I should say, in a mausoleum. Yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) This is something that happens at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. (laughs) Yeah, we will uh, post pictures on Instagram, hashtag um, the fix, hashtag happier in Hollywood. Today, we're going to talk about collaboration with our favorite collaborator, Marsha Clark. Then, since we are in the ultimate Hollywood location, we're going to check in with the location manager of The Fix, Veronique Val, about the perils and pleasures of location scouting. And then we are having celebrity sighting after celebrity sighting today, but all of them are six feet under. We'll take a little tour of all the famous and infamous folks who are buried here at Hollywood Forever. Sarah, before we dive in, we have a pilot question from a listener. Lauren wrote us, my husband, Corey, is shooting his first pilot in Portland, and I'm here with him. Do you have any specific suggestions on how I can help Corey through this pilot process? It's incredibly exciting and stressful, and I'm just trying to be supportive in any way I can. But I'd love to hear if you had any specific things you wish your spouse or families had known or done for you during pilot season. Well, of course, I love this question. It's a great question. And we should say, um, we know Corey and his writing partner, Matt Partney. Yes. Um, Matt was an assistant on Angel when we worked on Angel. So we've known them um, forever, it seems like. Yeah. So congrats to Corey and Matt We're on their so first happy pilot. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, um, Lauren, you actually have probably the hardest job. Yes. Like Matt and Corey are in hell. Yes, um, but they're so occupied. Yes. <laughs> um, now, I would say, you know, be just be understanding, yeah. right? It's kind of the number one thing. Um, whatever is happening, just roll with it. Yeah, because the job is the job. Yeah. And there's really nothing that Corey can do about that. Yes. So the truck is rolling. Yeah. So it's like if you've had a plan that, oh, we're going to have this one Saturday night off in Portland and we're going to go to this great trendy restaurant and it's going to be this wonderful romantic thing. And then at 6 p.m., he gets a call that there's a wardrobe uh, disaster and he's needed back in the office. I mean, there's nothing he can do to get out of it. Yeah. It's. As we say, things are a season of sacrifice, and this is a season of sacrifice, mostly for you. Yeah. Like, that's the hardest thing, I think. Like, 
when we're doing a pilot, we're just so engaged and up to our eyeballs in everything that it takes to get a pilot done. And it's really, unfortunately, the people around us yeah. who suffer the most. It's, I'm laughing because this morning, Adam was like, can you give Jack medicine? Because Jack has a cold. <laughs> uh -huh. And I'm like, I'm making a pilot. How am I supposed to give him medicine? Like, I'm too busy. But, you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. And like my nanny right now, because I'm an only parent, my nanny is like stepping up enormously. She's yes. spending so much time at my house. She showed up yesterday at 530 in the morning so that I could be on set at 630. It's it's like the support system that a pilot requires yeah. is truly astounding. And I mean, it's, it, it certainly um, is appreciated. Like the, the level of support that people give to those of us who are in the middle of this pilot insanity. Uh, it's, I mean, I, I can't even express how grateful yeah. we are for it. And I'm sure Corey will be for it. What's been incredibly great for me is that every time we've done a pilot, my family has been amazing. Yes. Uh, my parents came to Budapest when we did yes. a pilot. My aunt is coming um, next week so that she can be kind of on hand during the editing process, which is just as crazy as the shooting yes. process. Yes, She's coming. and that's something Lauren should be prepared for. That yes. It's not over when... When the when they say cut on the final scene, it is not over. It's really just beginning. Editing is just as grueling yeah. as shooting. Now, the other thing Lauren should know is that she's going to be spending a lot of money. Oh, my God. So much money, Lauren. It's coming. Because you think, oh, you're making money. off. I, last pilot we did, Sarah, um, you ended up spending $12,000. No, I was $12,000 yeah. in the hole for yeah. this pilot. And hopefully that won't be the case with Corey and Lauren. <laughs> But you have to, you know, you want to buy a truck, at least one for the crew. Um, that costs a lot of money. A lot of times, even for a pilot, you'll get a crew gift. That costs money. You are, you know, you're in, off in another city. And that just, even though you get per diem, that ends up costing money. You get flowers for the yes. actors on their first day. So if you have a big cast, that's a lot of money. And that's not something that production is going to pay for, but it's something that we think is a really good idea to say, to acknowledge someone's first day of work. Like, it's a huge deal for the writers and the director, but this is a huge deal for the cast as well. And they want to feel acknowledged. And welcomed. And go with the flow and know, Lauren, that as bad as it may seem in some moments, that's no indication of whether or not it's going to go. Right. Um, and then as well as it may be going, that's no indication of whether or not it's going to go. You just don't know what the future holds at this point, And you have to just accept that the future is unknown and just kind of try to stay in the moment. Yeah. And try to, you know, I hope you guys can enjoy it and celebrate the fact that Corey has reached this huge milestone. So congratulations to Corey and Matt and Lauren to you. We hope, well, of course, their pilot is actually our competition. Yes. But So let's hope Hopefully that we, we all, all make it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next up, we're going to talk to Marsha Clark about collaborating, the wonders of collaborating. But first, a quick ad break. Now it's time for our segment from the treadmill desks of in which we discuss what's most pressing in our work psyches this week. And this week, that's collaboration. We've talked about how TV is a collaborative medium, 
But during a pilot, it is the most collaborative that it will ever be. Um, and to talk with us about the delights and disasters of collaboration, we thought it would be fun to talk to our primary collaborator these days, Marsha Clark. And there's no Hi, disasters Marcia. with you guys. Oh, yeah. None at all. <laughs> no, none. <laughs> now, we should say that Marsha Clark, in addition to having been the lead prosecutor on the O.J. Simpson trial, is also a prolific author. And um, she has a show coming out, another show, not just The Fix, which we hope will be coming out, and we will get to that. But first, we want to talk about The Fix. Yes. So, Marsha, we've written two pilots with you now, and we are producing one, The Fix, and we love working with you. And part of that is that you're an extraordinary collaborator. What do you enjoy about collaborating? Well, see, here's the thing. I've collaborated with sort of... <laughs> Worked with others, so to speak, right? <laughs> yeah. And it, it's you guys that make it so great. It's you guys. Aww. No, really, truly. You know, I mean, otherwise, why would I be back, right? Because mm. we, right? sister, we chose to do this together again. Yes. We did. We chose. This was an absolute, right? Yes. So the first time we got together um, to do blood defense was like I, you know, I told you only after the fact. You didn't know that I had interviewed a bunch of writers because yeah. I had had other working situations that were unpleasant to put it very mildly and I thought I'm it life is too short you know mm -hmm. YOLO I really want to <laughs> yeah if I'm going to do this again and, and writing together is such an uh, intense experience and there's yeah. there's so much room for pain and sorrow and misery and all that it's just I'm not going to do it yeah and it, you guys were like it was so immediately apparent to me that you were perfect for me and and I knew we would work well together and I knew you, you guys were going to be awesome and you were well, thank you. I will pat myself on the back <laughs> yeah, you chose, for choosing yeah, well. Yeah. And then it proved, all proved to be true. We worked on that pilot together, and it was wonderful experience. So when you guys had this idea for the fix, which was, blew my mind, I thought, you know what? I can't wait to work with them again. It was so wonderful. So you know what I mean? It was really all about you. And I don't think I could have done It's more than that. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm talking a lot, but I got <laughs> a lot to say. <laughs> this particular premise is one that I would not be able to do, I think, with anybody else. Because, and we should take yeah. a second and explain Let's what the premise is. Um, the fix is about Maya Travis, who is a prosecutor um, in a trial of the century. She's um, trying a guy um, for having killed his ex-wife and her friend, and he is found not guilty. And the trial has shredded Maya's life, so she leaves Los Angeles in the prosecutor's office um, and goes and lives on a horse farm, and we meet her eight years later when her co-counsel comes to her front porch and says, he did it again, you've got to come back, this time we've got to get him. So it's, uh, you've experienced losses in that world, and it's, you know, something that hits home for you. Yeah, we say it's, it's based on sort of your emotional truth. Yeah. It's a fictional world and a what-if premise but certainly centered in the emotional truth of what you experience. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, for those who are listening, <laughs> if that story sounded familiar, that backstory, that's because <laughs> it is. <laughs> and so the defendant who got acquitted in that early case, his girlfriend is found bludgeoned to death, and they believe, wow, he did it again. So this, is, this draws on a lot of, uh, obviously, traumatic history for me, yeah. a lot of PTSD involved. And I, don't, I couldn't have done it with someone 
just a regular person. It had to be somebody I really trusted, somebody who I knew would understand, someone who would write it well, because mm-hmm. that's a kind of important little point. And you're co-writing this. You did just as much writing on this as we did. Yeah. I don't know if everybody realizes that. You know, they skip over me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when they talk about the script, it's like, hi, Liz. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> and, we're like, okay. and Marcia yeah. also wrote it. Yes. <laughs> and I'm involved in there somewhere. <laughs> I wrote a the yeah. and an and. <laughs> but, yeah, we um, basically split it into thirds, and then we've done a lot of rewriting together. You guys are so excellent at it because you bring an attitude to the table of, I'm not going to take it personally. You know, we just want to make the script better. It doesn't matter whose line it is, your line, my line. And every once in a while, we'll remember whose line it was. But at this point, I think we've forgotten. Yes, totally. (laughs) But that's a credit to you because you do work that way. And that's what makes for a great experience. Well, Well, but I have to say, every kind, wonderful, generous thing you're saying about us is so true about you, if not more so. I don't believe that. I mean, you're the person kind of putting your emotional health on the line to talk yeah. about these things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think we had so much fun working with you on the first pilot that we did. We just wanted to figure out a way to do it again. Yeah. I did too. You know, I true great collaborations are so rare that it's like you have to grab onto them and you and know, I, keep I them think going. Boy, that is so true. It, and we've all seen the ugly side of that sort of yeah. thing. Yes. People are just terrible. They're mean. They hate everything you do because they all they want is theirs, 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 my way, my way, my way. That's never productive. And it does hurt, hurt the script. It hurts the show. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of it's insecurity. It's mm-hmm. like if people are insecure, yeah. they have to try to put their ego out front and claim credit for things. Whereas I think we all feel like we all bring something to the table so we don't feel threatened in that way. And the other thing I will say is that I think the three of us share a direct style of communication. And that goes with not taking things personally. And I would say for anyone out there who's looking to collaborate, because I mean, people collaborate not just on scripts, but on, you know, opening a small business is a collaboration. Uh, working on a team project is a collaboration. I think just direct communication is the key to making a good collaboration. Because if you're sort of going passive aggressively around someone's back or you're not saying what you feel, you're letting something simmer, that's when it explodes. You know, 110% true. So, and a collaboration could be a remodel. Remodeling. Yeah. Oh, oh. Right. oh don't get that. started. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and everybody suffers with it, you know, but, but that too, I mean, all of these things that you do in your life, whether it's with a husband or a, or a friend or whoever, or just a coworker, these are all collaborations. And if you bring the right attitude, it can be a wonderful experience and enriching, and you become more than the sum of your parts, or it can be a miserable experience where it goes downhill really fast. And I'm just praying, praying that we get picked up, if only for the fun of working with you guys, really. I agree. The idea that we would not be working together at this point seems unfathomable. It just it feels like such the norm. Yes, it's yeah. like it our little family yes. needs to stay together. Exactly. I agree. I agree. Our sort of thing has been, and it developed over time, but that like there's always a third way. Mm-hmm. Like, you will have an idea, Marsha, then Liz will have an idea, or I will have an idea, then you will have an idea. And like, if we don't like something, yeah. we just keep going. Yeah. And then usually we find that third thing that all of us are really excited about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think in that way, 
Like this collaboration has been so successful because we push yeah. beyond where we would usually stop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I feel yeah. like we've tried to say if all three of us don't love something, we shouldn't stop talking about it. Right. Yeah. We should right. we should keep going until there's something. And when we know that we love it, you know, it's obvious. We can right. feel it. Yeah, we can feel it. We all go, oh, yeah. You know, and you know what? The other thing is, the willingness to accept that a good idea can come from anywhere. Yeah. You yeah. know, and the people who can't stand that and don't and reject out of hand. And I've worked with people like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, Usually it happens with men around the table. I'm sorry <laughs> to say, <laughs> but true. you know how it, it goes. You know, it's like duck, duck, goose. You know, uh-huh. the minute the goose, the girl says something, it's like it goes around the table until a guy says it. Then it's a great yep. idea. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. That, that, that comes back to you. that. But we have like an all woman practically show here. Yeah. We're going to have to bring some men in if it goes to series. Yeah, we do. At least a couple. Are you yeah. sure? <laughs> They'll be token men. Exactly. exactly. It's about time for token men yeah. instead of token women. But they don't get to ask, I don't know how to talk now. I don't yeah. know how to act. I'm not allowed to do that. Yeah. I don't want to hear that whine. No whining. No whining. No whining from the men. Exactly. <laughs> Now, one thing we're also all familiar with in Hollywood is these sort of shotgun marriages of collaboration. I mean, you've probably been in a couple. Like you're saying, you didn't want to get into a shotgun marriage with the project we did together last year. And I think we all agree that, like, any marriage that starts out badly, if that, if a shotgun collaboration starts out badly, it's not likely to get better. Yeah, I, I agree. It's like... When you get, first of all, you're being forced into this marriage, you know, and that, that's never a good thing. So you don't start with a great attitude, but you maybe start with a little bit of hope. And, but when you actually meet the person and you see that this is not a good collaborator and this is not somebody that you would ever choose to work with, it becomes very difficult to get over that. And then you're just constantly suffering, trying to make the best of a bad situation. And to say that it ever gets good, I don't, I don't think those situations, I've never seen them get good. I've seen them deteriorate (laughs) really fast. And then it's, then it's, there's this torture of having to pretend to be nice and like each other mm-hmm. when you just, when everything about them jangles and is actually pretty painful. And that, that can happen in any work situation. Yeah. In any office, you know, you get stuck with who you get stuck with. You don't love everybody you work with. And that's going to happen. And in Hollywood in particular, it seems that when collaborations are, are a bad match, it's usually because there is no trust. Mm-hmm. And that, and there's usually no trust because you know you're getting stabbed in the back every 10 seconds. Right. There's no trust for a good reason. For a good yes. reason. Exactly. Yeah. Bad collaborations exactly. can truly bring out the worst in everyone. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. you. I can find myself acting in ways that I would normally never act in where I'm just being a bitch extraordinaire. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because it's just not a good fit. Yeah. Right. And I think the right. reason why Sarah and I work well together for so long is because we met in high school. So we really have a trust. Yeah. That no matter what, we know that we wish each other well. Yes. Right. And that's a huge part of a collaboration. It's just yeah. not thinking the other person, you know, yeah. is wishing you yeah. well. Well, and that, and it, you know, it's so key, too. I mean, it's really hard to overstate the importance of something like this because when you're working with someone that you know um, really wants you to fail, really wants to shine by standing on your back yeah. or standing on top of the knife that's in your back that right. they put there. Um, it's a terrible feeling. You know, it's a terrible feeling. You can't do your best work that way. That's yeah. for damn sure. But the product suffers too. You know, the yeah. show does not yeah. benefit from that kind of attitude, but we see it all over Hollywood. Oh, yes. All the time. Yes. So the fact that you guys have this trust and you do, I mean, it's very clear that you're there for each other in so many ways. And that only f- makes for a better working relationship. 
you know, to be able to come into work. And I love this about you guys. You know, I can come in and say, oh, I had a terrible, my, my son lost his job and it was really bad. And then I have, I get true commiseration mm-hmm. and true understanding of mm-hmm. how painful that is. And vice versa. You know, Absolutely. when you're having issues yes. with either one of your kids, and I can it's like, say, Violet oh, hasn't gone yeah, into kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> and I could feel your pain, you know, I really did. Oh, thank God that turned and, out I mean, okay. to It anyone, turned out beautifully, thank God. I will say to anyone out there who is in a bad yeah. situation with a collaboration, like, no, most of us have been there. Yeah. yeah. It will pass. Yes. Grit your teeth. If you can't get out of it immediately, then just, you know, start planning an exit strategy. You're right. There's going to be times everybody has to muscle through. You can't have a perfect working situation. Every time. Every time. It doesn't yeah. happen. You can't have a perfect marriage every time. No, exactly. And, Marsha, speaking of marriage, before we let you go, we have to talk about the fact that you've been cheating on us. <laughs> you have another show. It doesn't count. <laughs> it doesn't count as cheating because it's unscripted. Okay. Oh, right? And it just premiered on A&E. It's called Marsha Clark Investigates the First 48. Yay. What can you tell us about it? It's a true crime show. So in this first season, because like, look at me all talking about first season, like we know we're going to get a second season. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, fingers you crossed. Know. Fingers crossed. Yes. That's right. It's a knock on something. But um, in this first season, we look at notorious cases, and it's a deep dive. It's two-hour episodes where we reinvestigate these cases, like Casey Anthony, Drew Peterson, Robert Blake, Chandra Levy. We look at seven of these cases, and it's a real investigation, unlike a lot of these crime shows that have, they just kind of tell the story of the case. Um, we go out to the field, and I talk to the investigators and the defense attorneys and, you know, all the witnesses and all the police, and I try to reinvestigate the case and look for new evidence. And found, I found a new angle, and in some cases, shocking new evidence in every single one of them, because there's so much there. And I think there's not going to be one case where you won't go, Wow, I didn't know that. It's so compelling. Yeah. I mean, the show Thank is you. so compelling. I'm it's so very glad. intense. Thank you. And you're such Thank a you. badass. On it, which <laughs> yes, we <appreciate>. indeed. <laughs> and which it's we been, love. <laughs> it has been really interesting because we've been sort of there at times when you've got new evidence has come in yeah. and you've been like, oh my God, you're yeah. not going to believe this. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I really am. <laughs> well, I'm going to go, oh my God, guys, you got to listen to that. I mean, this is not helpful when we're working on a script. <laughs> but I got to tell you, I got to share immediately. And this one, this last case was Spreckles mansion case oh, we can't oh stop God. talking about it yeah so yeah i mean I'm, i you guys actually are going to be so bored by this series because you've heard everything already. <laughs> well i can't wait to watch the entire season yes i hope you like it we will thursdays at nine o'clock on a and e excellent i just did what they told me to do i usually forget <laughs> <laughs> marcia thank you for joining us today on location thank you um, so much after My this pleasure. we'll all go Back to Video Village and watch the filming of our show. Yeah, you know, but I, I was hoping this really. I just want to set the scene. It's a beautiful sunny day. It is. We're sitting out here. The sky is blue. We've been we've been living through some really tough times. Yeah, yeah. This location is hilarious. We are but, surrounded by palm trees. We are surrounded by palm trees <laughs> and blue skies, and the sun is shining. And I just want to order a bottle of wine and stay here. Me too. Hang with you guys. Yeah. Oh well. Is collaboration a big part of your job? Is it a help or a hindrance? What do you think? Let us know at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Up next, we check in with our location manager, Veronique Val. Sarah, now it's time for a new segment we call Name That Hollywood Job. Everybody knows about writers and directors and actors and publicists, but there are lots of interesting or unusual jobs in Hollywood, and we're going to talk about them. Yes, and today we're talking to location manager Veronique Vowell. 
Veronique has tons of experience as a location manager. She's worked on projects like Curb Your Enthusiasm, Cold Case, Ray Donovan, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder, and Grey's Anatomy, just to name a few. And she is working on the pilot of The Fix. Veronique, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And we are so excited to talk to you. And thank you for fitting this into your very, very, very busy day. Yes. <laughs> it's my pleasure because I think you're right. There are loads of really interesting jobs that people don't know exists. And I've been uh, teaching at a bunch of universities here in Los Angeles uh, some classes. And ah. when I talk to people about location managing, oftentimes it's something that's really just like not given much attention when they're, um, you know, in film school. Uh-huh. And then suddenly they're like, oh, wait, this is a really interesting possibility. Yeah. And uh, I think it's great. Well, this leads to our first question, which is, can you tell everybody what a locations manager does? Well, first of all, it's a location oh, manager. Okay. Location, location manager. Okay. A location manager works with the writers, the producer, and the director to find the best locations outside of the sound studio that would be um, good for filming. So as an example, if you look at a show like Scandal that has been in production for a long time and people know about, uh, many of the permanent sets are on stage. Olivia's bedroom, the White House, the hallways of the White House. But many times you see them at restaurants (gasps) or walking down a street or in a parking garage. Those are actually places that I find with my team of scouts and other managers. Now, a question that we have is, okay, you find the location, but as we all know, part of what we're doing is working in a budget, and you have had the the not fun job of saying, well, it's not just this fee, it's all these other fees. So can you explain, because I think people have no clue that it's not just getting a location, it's all the other stuff. And paying for the location. So I like to kind of explain to people that my job is two parts. There's the creative part, working with the director, the producers, the writers to find the perfect location. And then there's the other part of my job, which is more the administrative, legal, risk management part, and organizational part. So um, once we find the locations, our work is hardly done. I mean, certainly at studios, um, there's a very high uh, need for vetting everything through legal and risk management to make sure that we're protected. I have to get all the film permits. Like tomorrow, we're going to be filming in Malibu. And it's not only a permit for the city of Malibu, but there's a permit for Caltrans and for LA County harbors and beaches and all these different things so that we're able to film there for a couple of days. We have to talk to neighbors. Uh, We want to film past 10 o'clock tomorrow night, so we have to reach out to all the neighbors and get signatures. So there's a huge amount of work that goes into preparing a location for filming. Uh, Veronique, has anything really crazy ever happened? I'm putting you on the spot. Well, many things, many yeah. <laughs> crazy things have happened, obviously, depending on where we're filming anything from just strange people walking up and not wanting to leave to neighbors. One neighbor in a, in one area we were filming years ago, she, she brought out like 15 vacuums and put them on her front lawn to make as much noise as possible wow. because she wanted to get paid off. Um, You know, other people will suddenly take out their chainsaw for no apparent reason to do something that you know they weren't planning on doing only to be able to get money from us. Um, 
you know, I've lost locations at the last minute because of various legal and risk management issues or, you know, someone deciding to back out. Um, so when I say risk management, I'm not meaning, oh, we're filming on the roof of a building and there's no parapet wall and someone could fall off. I'm just talking about just the standard sort of legal and uh, insurance languages that the studios rec- recommend and, and mm. need. And what was your path to becoming a location manager? It was completely crazy. <laughs> My mother is from Switzerland, and I lived in Switzerland and went to boarding school and college in Switzerland and became a French teacher to teach at a you know French in a foreign country, like to teach French here in California. And I realized halfway through my program that I hated being a teacher. (laughs) And uh, it was something that I kind of was always on that career path. I don't even know why. I don't even know that I chose it, actually. So uh, after I finished college, my dad basically said, either come back to California or stay in Europe. But if you stay in Europe, no more uh, pocket money. Ah. So I was like, okay, I'll come back. My dad's a documentary filmmaker, and he ah. got me a job as a and a television writer. And he got me a job as a PA on a documentary, and kind of parlayed that into working for National Geographic for a few years. And then I did this great show, which sounds terrible, but it was so much fun, called Ripley's Believe It or Not. Jack mm. Palance uh-huh. was the presenter, and I traveled all over the country oh, in Canada, like seeing really weird things, and I enjoyed oh, that. Fun. And when that was over, I didn't know what to do, and someone said to me, uh, well, there's an AFI project that's looking for crew, and I said, okay, I'll go look. And they literally looked at a list, and they said, wardrobe person? I'm like, no. <laughs> uh, you know, prop person? I'm like, no. And they finally got down to location manager, and I said, what's that? And they said, well, you go and talk to people and find places. And I thought, well, that's what I did in documentaries in a weird way, and Ripley's Believe It or Not. And so I did it for a month, and my dad thought it was ridiculous that I did something for free for a month mm-hmm. because, you know. And I did it, and I then sent out 400 resumes the old-fashioned way, you know, in an envelope with a stamp. Yeah. I got one response from a location manager who was doing amazing stories for uh, Steven Spielberg. Oh, my God. And he liked my letter. And he wow. called me, and I followed him around for a week. And he got me my first union job, and that was about 30 years ago. And I've been wow. doing this work ever since. And are there a lot of women in location? There are. Surprisingly, a lot of women. When I first started, I was probably the only one of, not the only, but one of the only women. I was an assistant, and it was a very different world. As you guys know, you can't tell on the podcast. I've been doing this for a Uh while. When I first started, you know, it was, hey, go get me a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. Uh, Go buy me a pack of cigarettes or whatever it was with the old school men that were involved in it. But over the years, I mean, more and more women are location managers, more and more women are assistants. Um, and then the men that are, are, are location managers. I mean, it's a much more inclusive kind of environment. Good. We see, um, I mean, especially, I mean, I know this isn't Shondaland and we're not talking specifically about Shondaland, but it's Shondaland, you know, it's a very inclusive environment, men, women, people of different races, yes. creeds and colors, it's age groups. I mean, I think that, you know, that's really important because everybody comes also to the table with a very different perspective when it comes to locations and people see different things and have a different yeah, just a different perspective. So I like to see the different perspectives. You know, maybe I think a house written as such and such a character looks this way, but then one of my team members may say, hey, but Veronique, what about if we looked at it this way? And I'm like, oh, yes. And then maybe that's the thing we bring to the table to show everybody. I don't right. know if that makes sense. Yeah. But you yeah. Know. By the way, for anyone who doesn't know, Shonda Land refers to Shonda Rhimes' company, Shonda Rhimes, who is 
as big as it gets in TV um, and is very inclusive and has paved the way for a lot of women and people of color in television. Absolutely. How can we as executive producers make your job easier? Well, the most important thing is whatever your show is, whatever the topic or place it's supposed to be, wherever it is you're filming, think about what's available to you where you're filming. Mm -hmm. So say you're making a movie about Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. You have to realize that there's things from Washington, D.C. that don't exist here or vice versa. I mean, a show that I worked on a long time ago, which was on the East Coast, they constantly wrote rivers. And I kept telling the writers, there are no rivers in Los Angeles. There's there's concrete channels. There, there are no rivers. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I mean, obviously for you guys writing the fix about Los Angeles and in Los Angeles, it's a little bit less difficult. But if your next show takes place, I don't know, in Chicago and you're making it in L.A. or conversely, I know some folks who are in Atlanta right now making a, a, a pilot about that takes place in Los Angeles mm. about the police department. And I'm thinking... You know, they have to be thinking in Atlanta what they can do to cheat L.A. in Atlanta. So it's, you know what I'm saying? It's like you don't want to write the beach in Atlanta because you're not at at Santa Monica Pier. Right. You can bring in palm trees. You can't bring in the beach. Correct. (laughs) Those, to me, that's one thing. And then secondly, you know, if you can write an eighth of a page scene or little scenette in a a location, you can probably write a quarter of a page or a half Mm. a page. Or as a writer and you say, okay, this is the important place. We're at a cemetery and that's important. But I have this other scene I need to write to to move the story along. But it doesn't really matter where the scene takes place. So, you know, being able to say to the location manager and the production designer, hey, the cemetery is important, but this other location is not so important. So just tell us what's like next door or around and we'll just write the scene to that location. You know, obviously, I always ask, what's the dog and what's the tail when we're uh-huh. looking at a script? You know, like, what, what, is, what are the important locations? Like, on the fix, what were the most important locations? Yeah. And find those important locations and then figure out what are the, let's just say, secondary locations and then marry those to the more important locations. Okay, so what's the dog and what's the tail is my what, new favorite thing. That's our ta- that's our takeaway yes, lingo yes. motto phrase from this interview. What's <laughs> yes. the dog and, and what's, what's the, the tail? tail? <laughs> that's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Veronique, for being here and for finding the locations. And we're hoping all of our listeners get to see those locations so. on yes. TV this fall. So we, we will see. And yes. thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my thank pleasure. You. Okay, Liz, it is time for our celebrity sighting this week. And since we happen to be shooting in one of the most star-studded cemeteries on the planet, I don't know how many there are, but this is probably the most. So we decided it would be fun to just walk around and look for the final resting places of all these famous and talented people and, at least in one case, animals. Let's do it. Okay. So, Sarah, we are walking through the cemetery looking for famous graves. Um, We heard that by the mausoleum, there's a lot of famous people. So that's where we're going. I see a statue over there. Should we go see who that is? Well, two statues, actually. And there's a guitar. So I'm guessing that's someone famous. Let's go look. Ah, it's um, Johnny Ramone of the Ramones, legendary guitarist. Okay, I'm going to take a picture of his headstone. 
And it says, if a man can tell if he's been successful in his life by having great friends, then I have been very successful. What's interesting about this as we're walking through the cemetery is we're running into people who are here just going on walks during their work day. There's a woman with some kids over there. There's a lady reading a book. It's a very peaceful, lovely place. Sarah, I've got to say, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> Guess who I just spotted? Oh, do you see Toto? It's Toto. There's a little statue of Toto. It has fresh flowers, I should mention, that someone left. And the monument says, This monument is dedicated to the memory of the beloved Toto from the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz. And someone left a ruby slipper also. There's Mickey Rooney. Wow. One of the greatest entertainers the world has ever known. Hollywood will always be his home, says his um, crypt. Is that what that is? Yeah, I believe it's a crypt. Do you want to take a picture of this? And we'll um, post it on Instagram, hashtag happier in Hollywood. Um, it's people have also left um, flowers um, and an Easter bouquet um, and some Day of the Dead uh, decorations as well. There's Mickey Rooney. So, Sarah, as we leave our listeners for the week, let's go um, look for the grave of Chris Cornell. I really want to find that. All right. And that's it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. Email us or send us a voice memo at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks to Marsha Clark for joining us today. You can see her other show, Marsha Clark Investigates the First 48, on Thursdays at 9 p.m. on A&E. Also, thanks to the fabulous Veronique Vowell, who has the best name ever, for answering all of our location questions. Thanks to Shara Morris for helping us out with recording today. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Lai. Also, thanks to Kristen Meinzer and Andy Bowers of Panoply. Thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at Liz Craft and Sarah is at S Fame. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join the conversation. Until next week, I'm Sarah Fain. And I'm Liz Craft. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. Sarah, would you want to be buried in Hollywood forever? I don't know. I mean, it's a pretty intimidating place to be buried. The bar is high. I don't want to be buried at all. I want to be cremated and scattered. I don't want to be confined any space. Uh, yeah, I think I'm with you. All right. Sorry, Hollywood forever. You will not be our forever resting place. <laughs> <laughs>